Good morning. My name is Ariana Dennison, and I'm the Outreach and Parent Mentor Coordinator. And I'm Natalie Coughlin, the Manager of Development and Communications at Maternal and Child Health Consortium of Chester County, your family health resource. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in last month for our episode, Internet Accessibility, as we discuss an initiative to bring Wi-Fi and internet connectivity to everyone in Chester County, Pennsylvania. This month, we have Dr. Tiffany Cope joining us for a conversation about her experience as a provider through COVID-19 and the work on improving breastfeeding rates in Chester County. Dr. Cook is a general pediatrician with the CHOP Care Connection Group at Chester County Hospital in Westchester, PA. She is a native of Northern New Jersey where most of her education took place. She moved back to the East Coast eight years ago after finishing her pediatric residency at the University of Chicago. She is dedicated to improving health outcomes by working on addressing biases and inequities in medicine. Dr. Cook, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get into what's been going on, can you talk more about how you became involved in medicine, why pediatrics? Yeah. So um, ironically, me being a patient actually started, um, you know, my, like my interest in medicine. So when I was 12, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes. Um, and I was like, pretty sick. Looking back, I didn't realize it, but I was pretty sick. I was in the hospital for about a week. Uh, half of that stay was in ICU. So about four days in an intensive care unit. And I just remember being really amazed at how, like the science behind the medicine, as well as the people on that team, the nurses, the doctors, were really able to take something broken like myself and make me whole again and to make me better. So that kind of sparked my interest in medicine and, and helping people, healing. I am blessed and I was blessed that my dad has passed, but I was blessed to have two parents growing up who really, really encouraged me to to look into the things I was really good at, which was math and science. So they really engaged me. They saw something beyond what I could see for myself at that time. Um, and they really encouraged me on my path. So that's how I got into medicine. So what's your experience been over the last year during the pandemic compared to your experience before that as a provider? That's a great question. Looking back, I had to pick two of feelings or emotions to like sum up the experience of probably be, will be fear and then a little bit of anxiety. I think that for me, uh, being a provider, it was just a, a, a known territory. What do you wear to correctly protect yourself examining a patient? How do you answer the questions? You know, the guidelines and rules are always changing. How do you do your best to keep up on what's up to date uh, to make sure you're an advocate for your, for your patient, patients and the families? There was definitely, I would say, some like uncertainty in regards to just outcomes. In medicine, typically, like if you do the right things and if you are preventive versus reactive, if you are creating your body and to be the healthiest host that you could be, taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, for the most part, that typically means that you're going to have better outcomes when it comes, you know, to like hospitalizations, death, things like that. And what I was seeing is that, you know, people who were young, healthy, no medical issues whatsoever. We're still having issues fighting this, this virus. And I found that really scary because as a provider, it was, wasn't adding up. And, you, and I just wasn't really sure what to do at times. So looking back, it probably was a lot of anxiety and fear. I will say that, you know, kind of look at the silver lining behind things, right? Like, so, not, you know, what, what have you learned? 
I think that, you know, being a provider in this pandemic and being like a young provider, I've been practicing, practicing for about 10, 10 to 13 years now, it's taught me to be um, resilient. It's taught me to be able to look at resources with a little bit more like skeptical eye and really looking at facts, looking at how to read these clinical trials and what does it mean for myself being high risk and my patients. It's taught me how to look at how could we do things better as far as resources, you know, how to wasting things, utilization, process improvement. So on the flip side of it, I'm coming, you know, somewhat coming out of it now, I think it has made me a lot stronger. So specifically for maternal and pediatric care, how has that been affected? Yeah, so for the most part, what we're seeing in regards to comorbidities, which is um, how sick it can make you, and then um, mortality, which is death, that really has been, for the most part, with the adult population. So as a pediatrician, um, it really hasn't affected like pediatric care, per se, that much. But just being in the healthcare industry, there was a period of time where just like, you know, hospital like volumes were, were lower um, if you weren't like an ICU or the COVID unit. I think that it really put a stretch in regards to like staffing issues. How do you staff properly for these patients? How do you staff for people who are at higher risk? How do we make sure, again, that we're using our resources a little bit different and not wasting because not knowing like where supplies are coming from or how we're doing with our supplies? As a pediatrician at Chester County, usually the from a, an adult standpoint, what I would see is I would see the COVID positive moms. So moms who, before they deliver, they're tested. And if they were COVID positive, they would come to the pediatric unit with the infant and kind of we would take care of them as a cohort. So from my perspective, most of the, the COVID positive adults that I saw were really moms who had just delivered. And you're kind of really trying to help them figure out how to give safe care, you know, for the newborn in the hospital and at home. I also had a quick follow-up to that because I remember a while ago when you and I spoke that you said nine times out of 10, it was a Hispanic mom or family coming in with Mm -hmm. instances of COVID. Yeah. So especially in the beginning. So as this kind of, in the beginning when we first started, when we were getting these like COVID positive moms who just delivered, for the most part, I I could, it was, we were seeing Hispanic moms come in that were COVID positive and it just kind of at that point in time, made me think about what are we doing? What are we missing here? What gaps are we not fulfilling in regards to just education and again, resources? You know, when you think about how you contract a virus and how you prevent the virus, a lot of that is based on what you do for a living. Are you able to isolate? Who lives with you? Are they isolating? Are they healthy hosts to begin with? So a lot of those other comorbidities and a lot of other those like social economic factors a lot of those questions really started to play in my mind. Like, are we really reaching this group? Because that's kind of what I'm seeing coming in for the most part. And just another follow-up to that. You, I think, had said that when you did have a COVID-positive mom that had just had a baby, you kept the, the mom and the baby together? Correct. So initially, the CDC recommended separating them. They recommended the baby being in a, this is, again, changing guidelines. Initially, the CDC recommended that if uh, the mom had the baby, and all is well, the mom and baby will be in separate rooms. So you have the baby in isolate in one room and the mom next door in the other room. Then the CDC changed the guidelines and furthermore said that the mom and baby could stay together. So for the most part, if the mom is asymptomatic, meaning she's not having any symptoms, she's COVID positive, but no true symptoms, and the baby's doing well, we put them together um, and try to teach mom how to breastfeed safely, how to do good hygiene, hand hygiene, uh, mouth hygiene, you know, while trying to care for her infant. That actually leads perfectly into the next question. 
Can you talk about the importance of breastfeeding for the baby's development and effects in the long term? That's a good segue. Okay, yeah. So this is probably the question that this conversation when I'm talking about breastfeeding period with any mom, you always want to start out like why why is this important and why you should do this, right? Like why should why should this matter to you and your family? So we want to separate it to two things. It's the mom and then it's the baby because it's benefits to both actually. So with the mom, first and foremost, it actually decreases her risk of certain cancers. So you talk about like breast and ovarian are probably the top two that breastfeeding helps decrease their risk of. It decreases risk of high blood pressure, asthma. It helps mom lose weight faster after she delivers. So there's a whole uh, bunch of like medical and, and emotional reasons why my, this mom should breastfeed. And it's free. It is free. It's something that you can do for your infant. Your body does this. It's geared up to do it. And you're giving your infant protection. For the baby, research has shown um, for a while that um, infants who are breastfed, they have a uh, decreased risk of infection. So colds, ear infections, runny noses, decreased risk of obesity. So we know that now like obesity is a big risk factor for like, a lot of type 2 diabetes, even in pediatrics. So that's a huge protective factor. Some cancers, it's a decreased risk of as well. So from a, just from a medical standpoint, if you're dealing with, let's say, a population who may already have a disadvantage, and this is my key point, disadvantage, maybe they don't have enough resources where they can, let's say, maybe buy the most like healthiest foods, or they're living in an environment where they can't necessarily have their kid go outside and play because it's not safe. They don't have access to medical care. This is something that we can do for every family just to give them a little bit of a head start and a high opportunity to actually have better outcomes for their kid. And I try to stress that as more, most importantly in families who are disadvantaged. And just to follow up with that, how did lactation counseling work during COVID with the, the negative COVID test parents versus the positive COVID moms? You mean lactation, like after the, the baby's born? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So you're still wearing PPE, right? So the, so the AAP still recommends breastfeeding for every kid. Um, if a mom is COVID positive, she can still breastfeed as long as she's doing again the proper hy- uh, hygiene, and washing her breasts off beforehand, wearing a mask, so you're not transmitting any um, other viral viral particles or viral loads to your infant. When we go into the room, even with lactation, we're geared we're geared up in PPE. So when I go into the room to help a mom examine the baby as well as help a mom breastfeed. I have my uh, mask on, I have my face shield on, I'm wearing a, a, a gown. So theoretically, if you are uh, protecting yourself and donning and doffing, wearing your protective equipment like you should, you should be okay to come in contact with that mom, if that makes sense. So our consultants still go into the room. We still like help the mom position the baby, we give feedback, things like that. So that hasn't changed. It doesn't matter what you wear going into, into the room. It's interesting. I didn't, a lot of the health benefits for moms specifically um, for breastfeeding. I didn't know about the health benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that's, and if you don't know, right? So if you don't know, and if you don't tell the parents the, both of these things, we're not really allowing them to have informed consent. And I'm, I'm huge on that. If I'm not giving you like the pros, and we'll talk about the cons a little bit later, like, you know, the barriers. But if I'm not telling you the pros for you and your baby, then I'm not giving you the full picture of why this is so important and letting you make a obviously informed consent for you and your, your, your child. Right. And improving breastfeeding rates is an aspect of MCHC's Healthy Start program since they are 
statistically lower among the populations we serve, specifically Black and Latina women. So it's something that staff educates women in our programs about so that they can make informed decisions. So my question to you then is what are some of the barriers that these families face to initiate or keep breastfeeding? Yeah. I mean, this is something that's been studied too. So if you ever um, did like a database search, um, this stuff is already out there and well-known. So breastfeeding is a multifactorial process. I, I can't stress that enough. Um, I will say breastfeeding is not easy. I will never say that it's just a, a one, two, three, one, two, three phenomenon. But with that being said, in order to successfully breastfeed, you have to really know at some point in time that you have the support to do so. So I think lack of family guidance um, is a big barrier. For example, in the African-American community, there tends to be a big disparity. A compare, even compare African-Americans versus whites versus Hispanics, African-Americans are probably the lowest in regards to the um, initiation rate, like your intention to, to do this, your initiation of doing it, and your duration of breastfeeding. And it's been studies that have been shown that should say that if you don't have the support, i.e., I was not breastfed. My mom was not breastfed. My grandmother was not breastfed. So in my culture, in my family, it's just not the typical norm. So if I would have a child, the chances or likelihood of me actually wanting to partake in this process without my mom, you know, saying, hey, Tiffany, you should do this. My grandma supporting me is a lot lower than another culture who may actually embrace breastfeeding and their whole family, whole circle has done it. So, and they have help. Support is a huge factor. I would say um, just your general health status is a, fact, is a factor too. So we talk about like just well-being and health. If a mom delivers and a mom either has a, a bad postpartum outcome, a premature infant, it is going to be a lot harder for that mom to breastfeed and do it successfully than a kid that is full-term, mom is healthy, um, resilient, and resourceful. So your prenatal course, your postpartum course, all factor into your, your, your rates of actually able to be, be able to do this successfully, if that makes sense. Um, there is some historical trauma with breastfeeding, especially in the African-American community. So if you think about back in the day, um, during slavery, things like that, wet nursing, things like that was a, a very common thing. Um, and it happened a lot. So, you know, in my family is a, a very high possibility that, you know, that historical trauma has been passed down all these years. And in my family members have said, you know, we'll just do formula because of that trauma and what that meant for African-Americans back then, if that makes sense. So I think that there are a lot of factors with that, with breastfeeding uh, in regards to, you know, if it, if it works for you or if it doesn't. You also need to be, to be able to get care. Like who's telling you about breastfeeding if you, don't, or if you don't have access to prenatal care and the people that can give you those options about it. So I think we look at breastfeeding, like what the barriers are, depending on the different cultures, access to care, education status, huge. So if I got a mom that's working at Taco Bell, um, do you think that that, that, that environment is going to be inducive to that mom taking breaks and pumping versus, you know, me being a physician and my job is set up to where, you know what, if Dr. Cook wants to breastfeed her kid, we're going to make sure she's able to pump. A lot of, you know, a lot of SES status, SES and socioeconomic statuses uh, factor into like, is a mom able to do this or not, unfortunately. How have you seen in your personal experience as a pediatrician, as a doctor, bias or racism play a role in the rate of breastfeeding or the access to breastfeeding education for non-white moms versus white moms? Yeah, uh, I, I, first and foremost, let's start with, you know, we, we all have bias, we're human. So we all have life experiences that have um, either caused us to feel a certain way, um, cause us to, you know, just carry certain experiences and trauma with us. Um, that makes us human. 
what is important is that you recognize those biases um, and why they exist and don't act on them. I'm huge on that. So for example, the, the project that I'm working on right now actually stem from, I would say somewhat of a, like a bias, but somewhat of an expectation on my end. And so what happened is one day I was working in a newborn nursery and I, um, I had an African-American mom who was single and I uh, walked in and I gave my disclaimer. Hi, I'm Dr. Cook. How are you? What are your feeding plans for your uh, baby? And she, she told me, she said, I, I want to exclusively breastfeed. And for me, I found myself very surprised by that answer. And it took some time and I really had to sit in it for a moment to really again investigate why did I feel that way? Why was I surprised? And looking back into it, as I sat down and reflected on that experience, it was because most of my African-American moms that I come in contact with, that's not the answer I typically get. From there, I went into the data and said, well, what does the evidence show? What's going on nationally? Like, you know, am I the only one seeing this here or is this happening all over the country? And it's a, it's a, again, it's a national it's a disparity, it's well known. So again, if I was a provider and just kind of off of my own biases, you know, that mom said, say mom had told me, hey, Dr. Cook, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna decide to do formula. And I just went with that flow because that's what I expect from, I expect from her. That would affect her care and her opportunity. Versus me asking her, you know what, uh, I understand I, you know, that that's your choice right now. Is there a reason why you don't want to breastfeed? And then seeing what barriers are coming up through the conversations, and how we can actually mitigate and, and, and go around those barriers and roadmaps. So I think we all have biases. Um, and I think it affects sometimes, you know, if we spend more time with a family, if we really dig down deep and start really like going through those layers, seeing um, is there anything that we can do as a medical community to make this happen for this family and create their own roadmap for, for them and that, that baby? Yeah, definitely. So then what are some strategies to addressing all of this? Yeah, I think that the, the first thing is that I think parents are looking for transparency. The number one thing that I, I run across as a pediatrician in regards to a mom that like wants to breastfeed and then for some reason she has stopped something has happened along the way that she wasn't expecting. So whether it is her nipples being sore, um, whether it's not um, being sure that the baby's getting enough, something is causing her to want to um, revert back to you know, changing that decision. So I think transparency with the process is huge in the beginning, prenatally, doing education, doing these visits, letting them know like these are the pros and cons of breastfeeding. This is what breastfeeding is going to take this is what breastfeeding might look for you. These are the things that may happen. So, so don't be, so don't be, you know, a surprise if you know what it may be a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning. But we'll work with you through that to make sure you know it's not too painful. Don't be surprised if the baby may start to cluster feed a lot on day number two and keep you up like every hour, hour and a half. Going, you know, this is how you know your baby's getting enough. So don't worry, you know, if you think if you, you know, if you, if you think your baby's like, you know, starving. This is how you know as a mom that you're doing what's best for your baby. I think the more you prepare people for any situation, the better they can handle it, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that's huge. That prenatal kind of before you give birth education as far as what to expect. And then also going with each family and knowing their resources, knowing like who's at home with that mom, who can help set the baby up for breastfeeding. Even if you're a single parent, do you have an aunt? Do you have a sister? Who lives with you that can help you out? Because you don't, breastfeeding doesn't mean you're doing it by yourself. Breastfeeding also doesn't mean you have to actually put the baby to the breast all the time. You can pump. There's options. You know, maybe one mom doesn't want the baby on her breast, but she's willing to pump. That baby's still getting breast milk. So individualizing these plans for that family, like anything in medicine, is, is going to be huge. Because what works for me doesn't work for you, you know. So everybody has different needs, different resources, different experiences, different trauma. 
So we have to really start individualizing these plans and this care to make this successful, if that makes sense. From a law standpoint, I think that there are every job, if we have a mom that you know wants to breastfeed, there should be a certain mandates in place that allow time for her to pump. So she's able to you know, continue her milk supply and feed her kid, no matter what job you hold. Access to care, making sure that you know people are able to get to um, prenatal visits, follow up with their doctors, make sure that the kid is healthy as can be, you know, decreasing decreasing those risks before birth and after birth, huge in regards to like having a mom be able to breastfeed her kid. So it's multifactorial. It's like you can go through an education standpoint, you can go through like law standpoint in regards to rules and regulations, and you've got the medical side. Um, and in order for this to work, it has to really be everybody on all those sides really pulling together for, for these families and these moms and ultimately the baby. So is, I'm just asking this because I, I don't know, is breastfeeding part of the regular sort of prenatal visit? Like, is there get space given for that conversation to happen? It should be. It should be. Absolutely. That should be definitely one of the things that's discussed when you're seeing your OBGYN. Like, how do you plan on feeding your kid? What are your goals? Let's talk about a little bit about breastfeeding. So it, it definitely should be. I, the, the time to learn about breastfeeding isn't um, when you deliver. It, it's beforehand. And maybe, and in my my opinion, to be honest with you, the importance of breastfeeding should be started when you're a kid. Like, why not like have that like ingrained in like our culture? Like, you know, the importance of breastfeeding. Like, right. So as a kid, you know, wow, well, like this is important. This is why it's important, and it becomes part of the culture. Very true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, if I, you know, I don't have any kids, but if I had a kid right now, you know, I would obviously advocate for breastfeeding. That's because I'm a, I'm a physician and I'm in it, and I'm able to like you know educate myself. But you know, just by like statistics or background, like, you know, nobody in my family ever breastfed, breastfed. So why would I, if somebody didn't teach me, why would I decide to do anything different, you know? Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as we go more in depth into MCHC's programs. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.